Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at paytaxeslater.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. We are talking smart money. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Hannah Haytanen Kay, joining Jim Lang, nationally recognized IRA 401k and Roth IRA conversion expert. Jim is the author of the bestseller, Retire Secure, with testimonials from Larry King, Charles Schwab, Jane Bryant Quinn, Ed Slott, and 60 other financial professionals. Tonight, we're excited to receive outstanding financial strategies with one of the best guests we could possibly hope for. Jane Bryant Quinn is one of the most popular financial writers in America today. For years, Jane's syndicated columns appeared in hundreds of newspapers throughout the country. Newsweek magazine featured her personal finance section, and her expert advice can be found online at Bloomberg.com. Jane has recently completed Making the Most of Your Money Now, the classic bestseller completely revised for the risky new economy, recognized by Consumers Union as the best personal finance book on the market. Jim, I think you wanted to add a few words before we got started tonight? Yeah, before we get into the substance of our show tonight, I'd just like to tell our viewers a quick story. Back in 2001, I wrote an article, um, and it was regarding the new IRA and minimum required distribution rules, both while IRA owners were alive and after they died. And the new rules had a major impact on estate planning, and it, and it fit in perfectly with the estate planning I had been doing for years. So I sent out a, an email newsletter, and I called it the ideal, reti- the ideal beneficiary of your IRA. You know, I have 30,000 subscribers, and, you know, who, who knows who gets these things. And the next day, about 5 in the, in the evening, I get a call, and it's, it's Jane Bryan Quinn. I said, she said, do you have a minute to talk about this? No, Jane, sorry, I'm too busy. Of course. So this was the best thing that, that could have happened. Anyway, over the next two weeks, we spent over four hours on the phone talking about the, the new rules and my response to the rules um, for what was the best way to handle um, IRA distributions and estate planning for IRA owners. So just think of this. She spent over four hours. She, it ended up being a one-page article in Newsweek. So think of the preparation that went into a four-hour, that she spent four hours for one pages. And now with her new book, Making the Most of Your Money Now, it is 1,100 pages. It is an unbelievable book. And it is... Uh, I, I, Jane, I just want to congratulate you on really what I would consider a monumental accomplishment. Well, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. I do remember being back and forth on the phone with you because some of it was a little unclear to me, and you taught me pretty well, and I was just trying to get it very, very clearly in my mind, and we had a lot of back and forth. Actually, let me, uh, speaking of the work for this book, if I can tell you, it was supposed to come out a year ago. It, it's due, as you know, the, the pub date is December 29, and you can pre-order it on Amazon. So we're almost ready to roll with this book. But it was supposed to come out a year ago. And as we started getting into the year, I saw that things were changing rapidly. 
And I said to Simon and Schuster, we cannot bring out this book because things are changing. I really have to wrap my mind around what's going on with this economy and the stock market. And, and they, they tossed it back and forth. And I said, well, I'm just not going to write it. <laughs> and they said, well, in that case, okay. So I, I did wait, thank heavens, because, of course, everybody knows you know, how about the panic of 08 and what has subsequently happened and a new administration and new changes in financial rules. So I was able to catch them all. But the downside is that I had to revise the book a second time. <laughs> well, I know you are a hard worker, and it, and it shows in the book. It is a monumental accomplishment, and I actually thought you did a wonderful job of including um, many of your classic consumer-oriented, low-cost strategies along with things for the new risky economy. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. Um, Jane, what, what I thought we would start on is you were always a big fan of people putting money in their retirement plans, and now we have the um, Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, and I thought maybe that um, we could spend a couple minutes for the workers who are listening who have access to retirement plans and um, what is the best strategies. I'm not looking for specific investments like, you know, IBM or the XYZ mutual funds, but general strategies regarding saving for retirement plans while you are still working. Well, first, of course, you should use them if you have a <laughs> 401k or a 457 or, or something that is offered by your employer. And one thing that has happened in recent years is that many employers will sign you up automatically when you join the company, which is wonderful. So people who might not otherwise have savings have them. You know, you can opt out if you don't want it, but practically nobody opts out. Everybody just stays in the plan. And some companies are also automatically signing up people who are currently employees who have not been in the plan before, and this is a wonderful thing for them. They will discover in the future that they have money they wouldn't otherwise have had. And the second thing that, that you can choose at many companies now is to uh, have your uh, automatic increases in the money that you put into the plan. So every year, presumably, hopefully, when you get a raise, there's a small increase in the amount of money you're putting away in your savings, and it all happens while you sleep. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to think about it, which, in my experience, is the absolutely best way to save money for your future. You make it automatic. You have it happen. You have automatic increases, and then you get on with the rest of your life, and you don't have to think about whether to put the money in or not. So what, so what you're recommending is, is basically always taking advantage of whatever the employer is willing to put in, whether, it, you know, whether it's a match or whether they just put it in no matter what you do. And then you're saying put in the most you can afford and preferably the, the highest amount that you're allowed to in, into your retirement plans in the 401k or 403b or 457. Is that right? Absolutely. And you, you obviously you're probably not going to be able to start with the max the first year, but you should sign up for these automatic increases. And Jim, I'm also concerned about the people who don't have these plans, people in small companies, people who are self-employed, they, they know they need these plans, but there's no company doing it for them automatically. They have to do it for themselves. And it is just 
absolutely essential that they start an individual retirement account or, you know, if they're in a small company, uh, a, a solo 401k or, you know, one of the many plans that is out there for individuals. And, and I, if you don't have such a plan that gives you tax-deferred savings, please, please, please go out and do them. And you can find them at your bank. You can find them at mutual fund companies. They are very easy to start. Uh, but you just need a little initiative yourself, which is sometimes a little bit harder than people who have it come to them automatically at their companies. Well, I, I agree with you completely, and I, I like maxing out um, retirement plans and also if there is money available to put money in Roth IRAs. But maybe we should talk f- for a minute about in the event that people have an option between traditional retirement plans and, let's say, in a traditional Roth 401k or, I'm sorry, a traditional 401k, or now, if your company offers it, a Roth 401k that is going to give you tax-free growth. Um, I know that you have a little bit about that in your book. Maybe you can expand on, on that thought. And let's say that somebody is, is, is interested in starting their own plan. Now you can have a one-person 401k that has a Roth component also. Uh, you know, this depends, you know, this is one thing about about lo- about writing 1,100 pages, Jim, it's because it, 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 some of these things depend. You can't say it's everything is absolutely right for this person and say this is it and get it over with. Some of it depends on your situation. So if you are starting a, a traditional 401k, um, it is deductible. Your contribution is uh, deductible on your tax return. So, so you can you can save yourself a little money in taxes by having put money away. Whereas, if you start a Roth four hundred one k, well, it is not a deductible contribution. So, you're putting in a generally putting in a little more up front, and in return, you get tax free accumulation and some other benefits. So, so it really depends on whether you want to pay taxes now or pay taxes later. Uh, people try to predict what their tax return will be in retirement, which I find, you know, pretty risky thing to do. Who knows what your tax return or your tax bracket is going to be in retirement. So it, it's, that is really the, the things you look at. Generally speaking, the people who start the Roth IRAs are people who have more money and expect to have much more money in retirement because one of the advantages of a Roth IRA is that you don't have to make uh, mandatory withdrawals. A traditional IRA, you have to start taking money out at 70 and a half. A Roth IRA, you don't. So if you have a you know, considerable salary and you don't mind uh, saying, well, I'll pay a little extra tax now and put the maximum into the Roth, because later when I'm retired, I probably won't even need this money. I won't have to draw it out. I can leave it to my kids. That's the ideal person for a Roth IRA. The ideal person for a traditional IRA is someone who says, has, you know, maybe doesn't have quite as much money and says, I really need the tax deduction if I'm going to put the maximum into my traditional IRA. And then when I retire, first, I'm going to need the money. And second, you know, if I have not a lot of money, I might not even pay taxes at all. I might be in an extremely low bracket. So those, those are the two ways to look at it, and I, I basically divide it by the level of wealth you expect to have. 
Well, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of it um, relates to tax bracket and particularly for people who will be in a high tax bracket later and if taxes go up, then um, the Roth 401k and Roth IRA contributions make sense. But if you're going to be in a lower tax bracket or if you need the tax deduction now, maybe the traditional. Um, the other thing that, that actually kind of surprised me, because I always think of you as, you know, very prudent, plan for, um, plan for retirement, low-cost investments, things like that. Um, but I also, you know, know that, that you have a, a high... Um, a high regard for education and a lot of people in the middle are deciding between whether they should put money into a, their own retirement or whether they should fund their children's college educations and then you said the heck with the kids take care of yourself first and <laughs> yeah I, well <laughs> that, that kind of surprised me so I, 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 I thought I'd ask you to to expand on that on why you like taking care of your own retirement before you um, educate your poor children <laughs> well here i mean this is a terrible choice obviously between parents who can't easily do both which i might add is practically everybody in the united states cannot easily do both but you know if you approach retirement broke what are you going to do if you haven't saved enough money you don't i mean there is not a lot of chance for earning money i mean you know you get very low-paid jobs, if that, when you are retired, when you're an older person, a lot of discrimination in hiring against older people. And so you have no chance of further money coming in, and your expenses are going up, and maybe your house isn't worth as much as you thought it was going to be worth. And so gradually, gradually, you could become impoverished. You could run out of money. And then what's going to happen? You're going to look to your kids and say, well, you're going to have to support me because I don't have any other choices except maybe going on welfare, and your kids might not want that. So, so it's, a, it's a terrible thing to approach, to be in retirement and find that you're running out of money. And that's why I put, say, do retirement first. For your kids' education, uh, first, they can be working and saving some money. Second, uh, they don't have to go to uh, Harvard or Yale. They can go to all kinds of excellent lower-cost schools where they may get a substantial state grant. They may, get, uh, they may or may not get a federal grant. Uh, loans are available. And kids have their lifetimes to pay off the loans they take. Of course, some of them do take a lifetime, but they have that. Whereas if you... If you say even if you take on debt when you're 60 to help your child go to school what are you going to pay it off with if you're 65 and retire or if you're pushed into retirement all of a sudden unexpectedly you simply must look at your retirement plan first and then plot a really sensible strategy for what your kid can afford what you can afford uh, what kind of school is proper and i do have you know there's much more what i call merit scholarship money around which is based not on family income but on all kinds of different things you know uh, whether it's uh, athletic ability or whether it's brains or whether it's you played the flute or whether it's, you know, we're in Wyoming and we want to have more kids from the East Coast. I mean, there are all kinds of schools that have merit scholarship money. And I have in my book, I have a long list of places you can look for that. So there are ways that your child can get a good education 
and uh, even even without your having saved a lot of money, whereas there is no way you can have a good retirement if you are broke. Well, I have a couple responses. First, um, all throughout your book, you give a lot of references and places where people can get more information if the 1,100 pages that you provide isn't enough. Um, second, I would I would completely agree with you. I know that one of the worst fears that a lot of my clients express is running out of money and having to rely on their kids, and that is something that we really do everything to avoid. Um, and the other thing, that for, for whatever it's worth, and I'll, I'll personalize this, I know I was a better student when I had skin in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I went, I went to law school at night, and nobody was paying except me, and all of a sudden, I was a much better student than I was as an undergraduate because I was paying for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually think that that is, that, that is great advice, um, that, oh, that it goes counterintuitive to what a lot of people do. They, you know, they think, well, you know, I'll, I'll somehow... I'll, I'll somehow make it up, but it's it's just too too tough for a lot of people. You know, and, but and it's hard. I mean, emotionally, it's hard to say uh, I am not going to do something for my child because you know it's your child, and you have the responsibility, and you love them, and you want them to have the best start in life, and all these kinds of things. But you know, here here is something where you might be able to do both, Jim. You know, if you have this automatic money taken out of your salary, taken out of your paycheck, and it is going into your retirement account and you're increasing the amount that goes in every year. So you've got less money in your checkbook. You know, people tend to spend what they see in their checkbook. So if the money is taken out in advance, they, they kind of automatically fit their living standard to what they see in their checkbook. And so that's why I love automatic savings. Now, once you have all this money automatically coming out of your of your paycheck, so let's say your retirement is now being taken care of year by year, you may look at what is left in your paycheck and you may say, well, uh, for my budgeting, I'm, you know, we have the house, we have the rent, we have whatever, but I am going to put X amount per month into, uh, say, a, a, a plan of plan for my child's college education. You can then make that decision out of the money you have left. So as long as you have that automatic money going into your retirement account, then, you know, you have a choice when you're looking at what is left. And you can say, well, maybe I do want to. Maybe I can save something for education. So typically, if you can save, say, up to a third, uh, then you get a sort of a third in, in loans and a third in grants of some sort, and, and that's, that's kind of a rule of thumb. But uh, it, it, saving the maximum for your, for your retirement does not preclude your saving something for your child's education. Then it becomes a choice. What matters to you more, you know, a bigger house and a bigger mortgage or more money in your child's college savings account? And then I would say, well, you know, don't have the big house or the big mortgage. Then save for your children. Okay, we're going to take a time out right now, and we'll be right back with the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. This is Hannah Haytain and Kay, and we are talking smart money with Jim Lang and Jane Bryant Quinn. 
Jim, there's still quite a bit we'd like to cover tonight with Jane. How about another question? Um, Jane, what, you have so many gems in, in your book, but one of them that I thought was particularly appropriate and something that, that I'm kind of shocked, but I often um, find this problem in, in my practice, is that people don't know what their retirement benefits are, and they don't know what is available to them, both with a 401k plan in terms of what the employer is putting in, and perhaps more importantly, they don't understand their defined benefit plan. I thought maybe if you could expand on the importance of knowing what you have available to you, that that might help some of our listeners. Well, I, I mean, you put your finger on it, Jim. Uh, some people, you know, they're hardly even aware of their defined benefit plans. Um, a colleague of mine at Newsweek who was taking an early buyout package, the only thing he had been looking at for the past 15 years when he had been there was the amount of money that was going into the 401k and and what Washington Post company stock, Washington Post owns Newsweek, what that stock was worth and you know what his contributions were. And then he came into this buyout package and he suddenly discovered that he had a pension plan. And it hadn't, he hadn't realized that he had this regular source of money in addition to the 401k. So I think that a lot of employers are kind of dumb because they're putting this money aside and they're not explaining to their their employees that they have this benefit so uh, number one i'd say you know employers need to do a better job of teaching employees about it uh, if you do have a defined benefit plan and you are coming up you're approaching retirement you absolutely uh, defined benefit meaning the traditional pension plan where you get uh, a certain amount of money based on your age and the number of years you work um, you should find start finding out what it's going to be worth, and typically you will have a choice between taking that money uh, as a lump sum. You don't get the, the lump sum is there; it's discounted for future for its present value. So, it's seeing whatever you can get as a lump sum versus. Uh, signing up and saying, okay, I'm going to take this as a, a monthly payment for the rest of my life. And that's, that is a very, that, that's a really important choice. And that's at a time when I really do recommend your finding a, a, an accountant or a fee-only financial planner to help you, not a planner who sells um, products because, you know, they might steer you wrong but somebody who will just lay out what the choices are on either side. And if you, if you take a lump sum, you know, how, how well will it be invested? Will it, is it going to do better than you, you would if you had a fixed amount of income for life? And so, so those are things you have to think about very carefully, especially if you have a spouse to protect. Because if you take the traditional pension, you can take a joint survivor so that if you die first, your spouse has something, you know, has a pension left to live on. And if you take the lump sum and you invest it badly, your spouse could have nothing left to live on. So there are many, many things you have to think about when you're making that kind of choice. And that you very much have to know how much it's worth as a monthly income, and that helps you know how much else you have to save on the side. Well, I think it's interesting that you had somebody at Newsweek that literally didn't ha know about their plan. Because didn't know. Hadn't a clue. 
was very grateful, of course. That, by the way, that's like the automatic savings, right? <laughs> Something you don't know have, that you have coming, and suddenly you say, wow, I have more than I thought. Well, I had a client who, who came in, and she, she gave me all her information, and um, she was giving a huge amount of money on an annual basis to a religious organization. And I, I'm the last guy in the world that wants to discourage people from, from giving money to any type of charity, but at the rate she was going, she was going to run out of money. And, you know, I said, you know, if, if you keep doing this, you're going to run out of money, and I'm really concerned. And she said, don't worry. I'm not worried. God will provide for me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? She's giving so much money. And we, we talked further, and it turned out that she worked for a company that I knew had a pension plan. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, I, don't you have a pension plan from this company? And she said, no, no, no. I took the whole lump sum after I retired. And I said, well, I think that this is on top of your your lump sum. She said, no, no. I said, well, do you mind if I, you know, do some research? And she said, no, they know about me. I get my, my health insurance through them. And I said, well, I want to check this out anyway. Anyway, it turns out she does have a pension and it's going to a couple thousand cover thousand dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And now she can give money to her organization and live comfortably, but she literally didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is important for people to understand is that the nature of these pension plans, and particularly if you are an employee of a state retirement system, like in Pennsylvania, it's the PSERS, um, the way it works is you get more and more of a percentage of your last three years, the more years you work. So, for example, um, I have a lot of, of um, let's say, even teachers who might prefer to move to a different state and I really discourage that because to have, let's say, 15 years at State 1 and 15 years at State 2 is going to be nowhere near the pension as 30 years at either st mm -hmm. state system. And that, that probably goes for a lot of, of the um, private pension plans, too. So mm -hmm. that's, that's another reason why it's so important to know what your, what your uh, options are. Now, some companies, of course, have switched to... Uh a pension that they call that's known as a cash balance plan and that is much more like a like a 401k i mean you have a guaranteed amount that is put in for you but you don't get increased amounts based on your longevity so if you have that kind of a pension then the longevity or staying on the same job doesn't matter as much but certainly especially in the state some of these state plans have um uh, even inflation increases. I mean, these are these are just wonderful plans. Of course, there's there's a question of whether some of them can actually be paid, <laughs> because so many of these states are in deficit, and that's I guess another risk you have to look at. But basically, these are pretty reliable and quite remarkable plans. In fact, people who want to retire early, uh, so often I run into early retirees first. They always have a pension of some sort, and they especially are apt to have a government pension. The, 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 if, I, if I can get back to something else in your book, um, I, I did take the liberty of um, looking at Amazon to see, because um, I knew that I knew that readers could go to Amazon and order the book now. And one of the things that was on Amazon was a good chunk of the, my, my favorite pages in your book, which was basically the first 13 pages where you tell people what to do and you make a financial outline. Mm -hmm. And then you even say, well, here's the meat and the rest of the 1,000 pages is filling it in, which is 
obviously an exaggeration, but, but I, I thought that that was terrific. So you say, well, for if you're in this age group, do this. If you're single, do this. If you're widowed, do this, which I thought was terrific. Um, but one of the things that, another w thing that, that kind of surprised me, and now we'll go to the, let's say, to the older, the older category, is when you talk about advice for people age 76 and older, and you, you uh, correctly note, which is consistent with my experience, that people 76 and older tend to be depression-era mentality-type folks who, by nature, are not great spenders. And you say, the heck with the kids. Spend, spend, spend. <laughs> and I think of you as this kind of very prudent um, advisor who would probably recommend, obviously, you should do wills and beneficiary designations, etc. But you're encouraging seniors to spend some of their money rather than to hang on to it for their kids. Well, you know, it, it's, it's really for the very... I, I sound as if I'm anti-kid. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, no college, no college. inheritance. <laughs> Spend your kids' inheritance, right? Uh, I, I, I wish to say I have two children and six stepchildren. So I am very much aware of, of what kids need and how you can help kids. But I, I have a couple of feelings about this. First, you know, a lot of parents help their adult children during their lives. For example, they might help with a down payment. They might help uh, put something forward to help their grandchildren go to college. And so I consider this kind of a down payment on their inheritance, if you will, sort of getting the inheritance or some of their inheritance early when they can especially use it. It's a wonderful thing to do if parents have the kind of money so they can do that. Uh, I just hate to see older people scrimping and saving because they they think that it is essential that they leave something to their children most likely they will leave something to their children anyway because they probably own a paid-up house their children will get that and there will be other assets that the children will get but i just i just hate to see people of an older age depriving themselves because they are they're not thinking about their own lives and what's comfortable for themselves. You know, they, they've, they've raised their kids. They've, they've helped in various ways. I mean, this is a time when you should say, this is what I was saving all of this money for. This is a time when I really want to be comfortable and, and, and enjoy the, the last you know, 10 or 15 years of my life. And so that's why I say that. And it, I guess it sounds a little flip, but sometimes you really do have to encourage people to say, you know, you really can afford to take that cruise. Are you really, there are things you really can afford to do. Don't be afraid to spend the money. Well, I, I find that, that most of my clients, probably even maybe even younger than 75, um, tend to... Um, to really be savers and spend well under, and you talk a little bit about the safe withdrawal rate, um, you say basically um, a 4% safe withdrawal rate, and it might even be higher if you're 75 or older, but a lot of those folks will spend less than that, and I, I agree with you completely that, that they should spend some money, and if they want to do something for their family, maybe to take their family on a cruise or have mm -hmm. a family vacation, mm -hmm. Um, which is a, a great experience for their family also. Uh, and also, you know, some people just become afraid of dipping into their principal, and they say, I can only afford to live on the interest or dividend earnings. 
And, you know, I mean, that certainly is one way of looking at your retirement income. But the older you get, you know, if the principal is sufficient, you know, it doesn't hurt to dip into principal. Uh, there you still have the option for growth, assuming you have some sensible allocation still to stocks for growth, which you know, I still think is good for a period of 15 years or more. So, so that's another way that they need to look at it. By the way, Jim, if I can come back just one minute, it just occurs to me that there's something I wanted to say about um, pensions, the traditional pensions. And that is there are many people who will come to somebody who's retiring and say, give up your pension, uh, use or, or take, a, take just a single-life pension, use the extra money you get from, you know, if you get a joint and survivor to cover your spouse, you get a smaller check. They say take a single-life pension uh, and then you have extra money, use it to buy an insurance policy, and if you die first, your spouse gets the insurance payout, and if your spouse dies first, well, lucky you, you have this higher payment for life. I think that is a terrible thing to do. First, most of the illustrations are deceptive in some way because it is very hard for you to get the same returns if you, if, for your spouse if you take the, um, the single life pension plus the insurance company. Usually you can't, so there's something wrong with the illustration they show you. And second, there is so much that can go wrong if you do that that you might find out you can't afford the insurance policy anymore or something that in the illustration that was deceptive means that it doesn't work out the way you thought, and then you die and your spouse doesn't have the pension that you would have had if you had joint and survivor. So I, I always try to encourage people when they are at the pension age to think not just about themselves, but to think what what is going to keep my spouse safe as well. Now, the spouse may have plenty of income and and pension and whatnot of his or her own, and that's a different situation. But if you're responsible for the spouse, I just, I just really want people to think carefully about what they're doing. Well, I, I would agree with you because we actually run numbers in those situations, and we have found in most cases, particularly for state pensions, that, that you are much better off getting a two-life pension rather than getting a one-life and life insurance. But my big thing is you have to do one of the two. In other words, to protect both people, um, assuming that there's only so much money there um, and that the um, surviving spouse doesn't have their own resources, you either have to do a two-life, which, which usually works out the best, or one-life and insurance. And sometimes what happens is people do a one-life and then they don't get insurance and that, to me, is is leaving a, a big gap in vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Well, also, you know, their their might their situation might change in the future where they can they got the insurance, but then they can't afford to pay the premiums. You know, that can happen too. So, so it's much less sure for the spouse. So that sort of goes to your attitude toward risk and how much risk you want to take on your spouse's behalf. And I just think that spouses, which are usually women in this case, need to understand that when they are hopefully sitting with their husbands making a joint decision on that. Well, I, I know I really like the security of a, of a pension, and, and one of the things, a lot of people don't have pensions these days, they have 401ks, and you talked a little bit about buying an immediate fixed annuity. 
um, in effect kind of creating a pension from existing monies or retirement plans. And I know that usually you are not a fan of a lot of financial products, but this one you seem to think is okay. Maybe you could t- talk a little bit about, um, in effect, giving a chunk of your money to an insurance company and then getting a monthly income for the rest of your life. I think that is a highly desirable solution for people who don't have pensions because, you know, there it's very comforting to have that regular check in the mail and know that you're going to get it for life. And so I, as, as you and other people who've read my columns know well, I am very, very doubtful even, well, let's say it, I hate them. These commercial de- tax-deferred annuities that make you all these promises about what you're going to get in the future, and their fees are incredibly high, and they say, oh, you invest in stocks and bonds, you're going to make so much more money. And it just doesn't work out that way, and the fees are largely obscured. You don't realize what you're paying. You don't understand how these things are going to work in the end because they're very, very complicated. And so you, you go and buy them, and they are not good. Th- I, am a, I am really against these kinds of commercial tax-deferred annuities, guaranteed minimum benefits, all that stuff. But when uh, uh, this other kind of annuity where you just take a lump sum and you give it to the insurance company and you, you buy yourself a personal income or an income for yourself and your spouse, um, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Now, I wouldn't do it at 60 or 65 because then you're exposing yourself much more to the risk of future inflation and that these fixed payments are not going to be worth it. But, you know, if you're 75 and you're starting to say, gee, I'm a little bit worried of how long my money is going to last, I think that that kind of an annuity, is a, a fixed immediate pay annuity, is a terrific choice. And, yep. and they're not, they're, the costs aren't high, and also they're very competitive. You know, you can, you can go on to a, a website, immediateannuities.com, and you can see right there, if, if I have $50,000 to put in an annuity, how much monthly income at my age can I get from all of these competing insurers? It's a very simple, easy buy. You understand it. You can see what's the best buy. You can look at the insurance companies and their their safety and soundness ratings and make a choice. And I also think that it goes to um, help alleviate the biggest fear that most of us, and particularly seniors, have, which is literally running out of money. This this will assure that even, let's say, with Social Security and at least um, a annuitizing at least a part of your pension, that there's food on the table, um, roof on your head, and gas in the car. And, 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 you know, another thing, and absolutely, and the other thing is, you know, when you're, when you're first retired, you tend to spend more money than you are going to spend in your later years. Because the fact is, I mean, my, my mother is 94 and in wonderful health. I had a lovely Thanksgiving with her. And, and you know, when you say to her, what do you want for Christmas? She says, I don't want anything. And she means it. <laughs> she really is trying to get rid of things, not accumulate things. And as, as you reach your older age, you know, you have your stuff. You're not giving big parties anymore. You're not buying fancy clothes. I mean, you're, you're in a kind of a different place. So 
so in fact your spending does go down when you are older i mean some of some of it goes down because you know you're you're feeling you may be short of money but even if you're not your spending does decrease in older age which is something to consider when you're buying an immediate annuity you say oh well it won't keep up with inflation well maybe not but maybe your spending will decline and actually the great french writer voltaire actually has some advice for our listeners who do choose an immediate annuity. Voltaire says, go on living solely to enrage those who are paying your annuities. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, that, that works for me. <laughs> so so I, I, I think that, that, that that's really good. And that um, I like the idea that there's always going to be something, um, some type of income. And obviously it works better for people who have good genes and, long, and a healthy lifestyle and a longer life expectancy than somebody who just got back from the doctor with a terrible report, obviously that would not be a person who would be a good prospect for a, an immediate annuity. That's true. You know, actually going, going just for a minute about these commercial, very complicated annuities that are, you know, you're paying 3 and 4% for them and you're thinking somehow you're going to beat the market because you invest in stocks inside the annuities, I mean, it's just never going to work. But they're so complicated, people don't understand them. And I, I got an email from a reader just yesterday, and I just um, pulled it up. I, he asked me something about a different product, and, uh, and here's his email. He says, thank you for the informative response. Not once has a sophisticated strategy proved worthwhile for me personally. <laughs> So when I think of all these complicated things that are on the market that are sold as sophisticated strategies, like these very complex annuities, you know, I looked at this reader, I, I looked at this email and said, God bless, <laughs> something we should raise for people. Now I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from a lot of financial advisors who are selling these, but that's okay, Jane, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion. <laughs> okay, well, it, it's your show and your hate mail, but they, they, <laughs> they, they can send it to me. Too. As a matter of fact, do you know I'm I'm starting a website, uh, Jim. I have always been just too busy to keep up a website and you know keep up to date things going because I was always writing columns and books and I just didn't want to start a website and then not tend to it. Well, in two weeks I'm going to have a website up, uh, JaneBryantQuinn.com, uh, with current opinions and ideas, and so they can send their hate mail to me there too. Thank you, Jane. We're looking forward to checking out your website. Um, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be right back with our guest, Jane Bryant Quinn, on the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. This is Hannah Haytain and Kay, and we're talking smart money with Jim Lang and Jane Bryant Gwynn. Jim, I know you have another question for Jane. Oh, I have a lot. We're going to be we're going to run out of time, but there, I just have I have a lot. Jane, one of the things that I I really liked about your book was your chapter on when to take Social Security. I thought that it was. It was really clear in, a, in an area that is very murky. And so, for example, um, in some situations that you say that the primary income earner, which um, let's just say for discussion's sake is the husband, 
should delay retirement and delay Social Security, but that the um, dependent spouse or often the wife should start collecting her own at age 62, um, which, which is an interesting um, strategy, um, or that perhaps um, wait until the husband retires when she reaches 66 if he hasn't retired. Could you expand a little bit on some of your advice for, for people taking Social Security? I know in my office we have software that, um, that calculates when is the best time to do it, and you put in earnings records and you put in what's going on with both spouses. But sometimes, frankly, we just do it a little bit mechanically without really understanding all the concepts behind it. And that's one of the great things about your book is that you actually explain the concepts and, and why these things work. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Jim. I appreciate it. it the, the thing is that people, that married couples, need to look at their social security together. What, what, what? For for simplicity's sake, let's assume that the wife has earned less and has a smaller record, and the husband has a larger record. You know, that is flips for many couples, but this is the more traditional way to look at it. So, so many a woman will say. My Social Security is just wasted. I pay taxes in, and but I wind up taking a benefit on my husband's account because you can get, if your husband retires at full retirement age, you get half of your husband's Social Security. I can take the benefit on my husband's account, so all the money I put into my own account is simply wasted. And But there is a way of not wasting it where you do make get something out of the money and that is that at 62 if you have a small account and if you will go in your husband's account as a spouse later uh you you go ahead and you take that social security at the earliest your own social security at the earliest age you can age 62 and you hang on to your own account until the time when then you can go on your husband's account and, and get the spouse's benefit then. But in the meantime, you've had all this additional money from your own account. So you have to look at, look at what's happening to, to both accounts and what you as a spouse, wh- whether you are going to go on your husband's account in the future or whether you're not, that makes a big difference. And so it, it, it sort of seems complicated, but if you lay it out saying, well, here are all the different circumstances and these are the best ways to take Social Security, that's the way you have to look at it. And and the other thing, and this this has been very unusual for me, Jane, because I've gone practically an hour without talking about Roth IRA conversions. (laughs) I knew that was coming. (laughs) It had to. um, And it wasn't even by design. I, I just thought of it while you were saying, is another benefit of of waiting, particularly for the primary um, wage earner, is that you can have these very low income years where you don't have income from your Social Security. Perhaps you are retired and you don't have income from your um, job or your wages. And if you are less than 70, then you don't have income from your minimum required distributions. And that might be the ideal year to make a Roth IRA conversion. In fact, I'm I'm yelling and screaming to anybody who will listen for seniors not to necessarily think about 2010 for their Roth IRA conversion, but 2009 when they don't have a minimum required distribution. Mm-hmm. So that so that would fit in very nicely with um, mm-hmm. some of the advice that you're that you're giving. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, one of the things about the Roth conversions, which are 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 very big for as you point out, what's left of this year and for 
2010 especially, is that it does, that if you're going to do the conversion, you're going to pay taxes on the amount that you convert from a, a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, and it really doesn't make sense if you have to if you have to use the conversion money to pay the tax. But if you can, if you have enough outside savings to pay the tax uh, on the conversion, so you can convert the whole amount into the Roth IRA, then it makes some sense. So, so I, I'd say that's the key thing for people to consider when they're considering conversions. How are they going to pay the tax? They should be able to pay for it with outside money. I, I agree with you. I like to pay it from outside money. The, the only thing that I like to do, and we, we, we call it running the numbers, because I actually think that, that unlike many areas, you can quantify and you can run models of how much you can convert and which years. And what we have found is rather than, for most taxpayers, rather than converting the whole thing, either in 10, 2009 or 2010 or any one year, that we find that they are people are best off doing a series of conversions over a number of years and one of the main reasons for that is because that way they can accomplish the conversion at lower income tax rates mm-hmm. so and, and this is i guess this sort of goes to what we were talking about before that that retirement decisions are often very best handled by having a professional an accountant or a fee-only planner somebody who doesn't sell products uh, take a look at what the numbers are to they can help you make decisions about what you should do uh, whereas somebody who is selling financial products may want to hustle all your money into a Roth conversion of some sort because he or she will make money by doing it well yeah I, I, I really do believe in running the numbers and coming up with an optimal Roth IRA conversion, regardless of, of um, how the money is invested. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that I thought that, w- that we would touch on, and, and it's because, frankly, you, you had such an impact on my career wh- by, by um, including some of the advice that, that we talked about back in 2001, um, because after, after your column, and I don't even know if I've told you this, but after your column, um, things really opened up for me because... Um, other other news sources were interested. So after that, I was actually in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Financial Planning, um, Kiplinger's, and a whole slew of other um, places talking about the the flexible type of estate planning. And actually, I, I wasn't surprised, but there it was on page 1057. Um, you include a discussion about that in your book. And we were talking about the the talking about the benefits of flexibility in estate planning. Um, of course, you always, you know, you have a section on how important it is to have a will and um, a retirement plan and to have that filled out properly. Um, I thought maybe you could expand a little bit about um, the flexible plan that um, that you talk about in the book. Um, you know, specifically you were talking about, and the other thing that you did is you had a great discussion about titling um, that is after the death of an IRA owner. Yeah, this this is uh, something that will be new to many people, and and it's really important for people to know because so many professionals, uh, you know, sort of stockbrokers or insurance agents or other financial professionals still don't know it, and they may make mistakes. And that is, if you inherit 
an individual retirement account. If you're a spouse, you can just roll it over into your own into your own IRA and and continue it and you know, there's no problem. It's very simple. You continue to get the uh, tax deferral. But if you inherit an IRA from your mother or your father, uh, it used to be that you had to take the money and pay the taxes over a limited number of years. But now there's a, a new thing called an inherited IRA, and and you can roll the money into this, quote, inherited IRA, and then you can stretch it out over, basically, over your lifetime. Uh, you have to take something out every year, but you can stretch the money out over many, many, many years, which, you, which gives you a wonderful uh, increase because you've got all this tax deferral with the money you have invested. But... You've got to do it the right way. If you inherit the money and you roll it into your own IRA, you're finished. It's taxable. That's it. Whereas if you take the money and you roll it into an IRA that is sort of titled roughly, you know, if, if your father's name is uh, Frank, you say, you know, Frank's uh, you know, IRA inherited in your name and the date Frank died and the date you got it. There, there's a whole long list of the things, the way you have to title this new IRA. You do that and you transfer the money into the IRA that way, and bingo, you've got years and years and years of tax deferral ahead for yourself. And I just and and you know if you go to somebody when you're when to say, okay, I've just inherited this money. What should I do with it? He and she has to know about this inherited IRA, and if they don't bring that up right away in the titling, you're at the wrong person because they don't know that. They're going to say, okay, we'll take the money, we'll put it in your account, we'll invest it in this and that, and you have lost a vast amount of money because you're paying taxes earlier than you have to. Jane, we want to thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I'm sure our listeners will agree when I say that this has been a most enlightening hour Thank you so much for joining us. This is Hannah Haytanen K with the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Please join us in two weeks on December 16th at 6 p.m. when Jim will talk about Roth IRA conversions with special guest John Bledsoe, noted author of two Roth IRA conversion books. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at retiresecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at RetireSecure.com. To seek Jim's advice personally or to speak to a member of his dedicated staff at Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, call 412-521-2732. Join us again in two weeks when we talk more smart money.